All right, thank you guys. Good seeing you this morning. If you're a guest, we're especially glad that you're a part of our worship experience this morning. And uh, whether here in this room or online that you're joining us, we'd love to have a record of your attendance. So uh, let me just join in encouraging you to uh, just write FL Respond to text that one word, FL Respond to 833-571-3475. That way we can follow up and uh, call you, text you, uh, email with you about whatever decisions it is the Lord is laying on your heart. For some of you, it may mean becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's something that you've been contemplating, really don't understand that, and we would love to come alongside you and to help you to understand that more fully. Uh, maybe as a follower of Christ, you don't have a church family, and uh, that's such a vital part of the faith experience, and uh, we would love to be able to help you and have a conversation with you about that uh, as well. And uh, also, if you're our guest, we hope that you will join us tonight at Water rampage at uh, 6.30, is that right? Somebody, okay, yeah, somewhere around there, show up. We'll let you in, all right, and we'll look forward to that. Let's open our Bibles this uh, morning. We continue in our study through the book of James. So we go to James chapter 4, pick up in verse 11, where we left off uh, last week. And uh, as you're opening your Bibles there, Homer uh, wrote it well and said it well, that words empty as wind are best left unsaid. Words empty as wind are best left unsaid. Uh, While that may be true, James is going to take it to another degree. Uh, While there are some words that are best left unsaid, there are even better words that are left unsaid. And that is the concern of of James. He's talking about words that are not empty like the wind. He today is talking about words that that have gravity, uh, words that are hurtful, words that are quarrelsome, words that are divisive, going back to the very things that he described back at the beginning of chapter 4 in uh, verses 1 and 2 in particular, words that are driven uh, as a result of bitter jealousy, as he has pointed out uh, in uh, chapter 3 and verse 16. uh, These teachers that are misusing their office and their position and out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, they are creating quarrels quarrels within the body of Christ. They are creating division, a spirit of uh, divisiveness, and that's really what James has been dealing with. This is the largest section of of James' letter, and it goes all the way back to chapter 3 and verse 1, and it will conclude today in in verse 12. We're just looking at verses 11 and 12 today, but uh, what James has concerned himself with is what we could call speech ethics, the ethics of speech of how the tongue has been used by teachers uh, in ways that are abusive, hurtful, quarrelsome, and divisive. And now as a pastor, James is calling those teachers, those who hold the office of teacher, into account in their behavior and, and what they are doing to the overall community of faith. Now, that is, that is James' heartbeat. In fact, we saw last week at the end of that, of that passage, James in verses 9 and 10, he, he wants for redemption. He wants for renewal. He wants them to, to repent. He wants these teachers that, that have become divisive, that have become quarrelsome, that want to be separate and apart from everyone else, don't want to be a part of the collective body. Uh, he wants these to repent so that they can be restored into fellowship. Now, as I've talked in these past many weeks, especially in this section, I don't want us to to give in to the temptation to say, well, because, because James is talking about teachers, he's not talking about me. 
I hope that it's that I've communicated it clearly and that we have all had this sense as we have been reading through the book of James. I, I would hope that for us each one, that we have a sense that because I'm a follower of Christ, uh, that because I'm committed to following after him, in a very real sense, though I may not have the office of teacher, I am a teacher nonetheless. As I go out into my respective worlds, as I seek to live my life obediently to Christ, as I encounter people around me on a daily basis, I would hope that I'm, that I'm a, a good teacher of what it means to be a, a follower of Christ. And so that is, the James of, that is the concern of James, is the overall witness of the church, a people uniquely called by God, and their witness and their testimony in the greater world, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God, that is the redemptive purposes of God that are being accomplished through us and in us. And so for James, he wants us to know that there's no, there's no place for this kind of divisive spirit, this quarrelsome spirit among those that would hold the office of teacher. And that does, in fact, include us six times already. James has already talked about the misuse of the tongue and the power of the tongue uh, in ways that, that when out of control, they, they are abusive and divisive. And what James sees as, as, this, as we look at this passage, what James sees as a, uh, as a kind of unholy triangle that, that destroys the lives of people and destroys the, lives, uh, the life of the church and the witness of the church. James sees this unholy triangle that needs to be addressed. It's an unholy triangle that brings divisiveness to the body of Christ. It's the one who speaks. It is the one being spoken to. And it is the one being spoken about. And so this is the very thing that James is seeking to diffuse within that messianic community. And especially those in his context that are abusing the office of teacher. Well, notice how James begins here in verse 1 as we bring this section to a conclusion. He begins with an inhibiting word, an inhibiting word that he offers there in the first, very first clause of, of verse, verse 11. And by, by inhibiting, I mean to be, to be it, when something is inhibited, it is put down by force or authority. And so as a pastor, James... He's using imperative, if you look at the grammar, he's using imperative form to say this in verse 11, do not speak against. It's an imperative, it's non-negotiable. This isn't something he's asking you to pray about, it's not asking you to contemplate it, not asking you to reflect upon it. This is a divine imperative inspired by God as we now know it's preserved for us today. James says, do not speak against. Now that should be sufficient right now. And we know how James has told those of us who teach to be guarded in our, in our tongues. That's why I would say back in chapter 3 and verse 1, I don't recommend that many of you teach. Because there's very few that can control the tongue. And it's very tempting when you're in the position of teacher, your ego can get in the way, your own kingdom building can get in the way, and, and, and bitter jealousy and selfish ambition can make its way into your heart. And that's what James is dealing with right here. And it's created problems within the body of Christ, that messianic community to whom he is writing. So he continues in the clause with this imperative voice. He says, do not speak against one another. 
brothers and sisters. Do not speak against one another. The word that is translated there, speak against, is a word that in general terms refers to slanderous language. But James sees these, these teachers, the context that James is dealing with, he's dealing with teachers that are driven by their own bitter jealousy, their own selfish ambition, uh, who seek the destruction of those that would call them into account, that would hold them accountable. To deflect attention from themselves, those who are filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, now then they attack those around them. They, they slander and libel and speak against those around them who would seek to hold them accountable. They now diminish them somehow to try to make other people think less of them. So in the light of that, James, the pastor, is adamant. Do not speak against one another, brothers, and sisters. You see, when he uses brothers and sisters, James is talking about the unique kinship that we share as a people of God, as the community of faith. That you and I have been entrusted with a kind of, of guardianship. In fact, this is, James isn't breaking new ground. Uh, there is certainly a precedence of expectation for those who are the people of God. Uh, listen to, to, to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 16. The command is, you shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to jeopardize the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. I, talking about your neighbor, he's talking about brothers and sisters. He is talking about a unique kinship that we have as the people of God. And I fear that's lost in today's church, especially in the Western church. That scripture far more concerns itself with this guardianship of what it means to be the people of God, a unique and distinctive people. We in the West have kind of embraced this Lone Ranger mentality when it comes to the life of faith. That somehow I don't need the church. I don't need to be a, a part of the greater body of Christ if I'm to, if I'm to live out my faith. And, and, you know, and sometimes we hear this tiresome statement. I hear this every so often. And, and, and for some people, I think it sounds really spiritual, like somehow you've played some spiritual trump card when you say this. And what I'm talking about is that statement where people will say, well, I don't have to go to, Christ, uh, go to church to be a Christian. You ever heard anybody say that? Maybe you've said it yourself. And I hear people say that, and when they say it, it's always in a context where, they, where it sounds like my impression is they think they have played some spiritual trump card over any discussion and conversation or accountability to being part of a faith community. Because you, you could never build an argument to take that statement and to say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You can't build that argument from Scripture. Because in the testimony of Scripture, you always see faith lived out in the context of community. It is never in isolation. It is always with other believers. Now, theologically, I'll tip my hat to it. Theologically, no. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But you know what? I don't have to go home to be married either. I can still wear this ring. And I can never go to my home again. But what kind of husband am I going to be if I'd ever go home? By that same token, what kind of Christian, follower of Christ, are you going to be apart from the body? 
you're not going to be the kind that, that we are called to be according to Scripture. Scripture always holds forth the people of God as a people who do things together, who are known for their togetherness, who are identified as a people together. In fact, the Apostle Paul would play on this even more than, than does James. Uh, go back to, the Gal- to Paul's letter to the churches in Galatia in chapter 2 and verse 20. Uh, Paul would use this language of togetherness in talking about the body of Christ, saying we have been crucified together. We, we have been crucified together with Christ Jesus. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 20 We are dead in Christ together. Paul continues that same theme in Romans chapter 6 and verse verse 4. We have been buried together in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 5. We have been made alive together in Christ Jesus. Colossians 3, 1. We have been raised together in Christ Jesus. Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Again, the voice of Paul. We, the church, we are sufferers together in Christ Jesus. Again, Romans 8 and verse 7. We have been raised up together in Christ Jesus. And so we are a people out in the world, not known in isolation. We are a people to be known together collectively as a community of faith, a unique and distinctive, holy, called out people of God. And because we are in this great spiritual warfare against principalities and powers, Ephesians 6, we can ill afford to shoot at our own people. That's the point James is making. You know, one of the great tragedies of military warfare And you can go back and look at the numbers. The numbers are staggering. You go back and look at U.S. military history, whether it's a declared war or a police action. The number of individuals killed or wounded by friendly fire. It is a staggering number. To die in war, to die in battle is bad enough. But to die or to be wounded by friendly fire fire makes it all the more difficult to stomach. That's the point James is making. In the life of faith, and the portrayal of faith, we cannot be of a people that, are, that have the kind of spirit and the kind of perspective that would, that would create faction and divisions because of bitter jealousy and selfishness ambition. He moves on in verse 11. He moves from that inhibiting word to an implicating word. These are the implications, James would say, of this action that you're taking and speaking against one another. He says, the one who speaks against, again, the same word as the first clause, the one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges. It's a different word, but he's going to play those two off of each other. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister, look at the play he's going to make here, speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and 
judge. And so the implication is, James says, if you speak against one another, if you're speaking against a, a brother or sister and you, and you are judging them as well, then the connection that James is making is that you're also speaking against and you're judging the law. In other words, you're setting yourself above the law. See, we're a people who are under the law. It is the laws, the teachings of God's word that instruct us, that guide us in how the life of faith is to be lived. And yet when we speak against a brother, when, when, we, when we judge them, we are speaking against the Torah, we are speaking against the clearly defined word of God, we are speaking and judging the law. In other words, we're stepping into the domain that belongs exclusively to who? To God. We are assuming a role that we, we are not entitled to. Now the law, we could ask the question, it's a legitimate question. When James is writing here about the law, is he talking about the law in general? Or is he talking about something more specific? Well, if we just consider the context of what James has said already regarding the law, I think probably the best, the best interpretation, probably the best way for us to take this, and it's, we could explore it further, uh, but, but regardless of whichever interpretation it is, if you look at how James has used law and the law in, in James already, in fact, if you go back to chapter two and verse eight, he talks about the royal law. And he's really referring to the words of his brother Jesus, how Jesus, when asked what the greatest law was, what's the most important law, uh, referred to, to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 and 5, what's referred to as the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then the second one is like it, and he quotes Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so what James has done is to do the very thing that Jesus did. He took the law in its entirety, and we know that, that, that the, the love of God and the love of one another is the summation of the entirety of the law. The entirety of the law was, was to cover fully the, the horizontal, horizontal and the vertical nature of our relationship with the Father and with one another. And so as James talks about the law here, and he talks about what our life is to be about, when you, when you criticize someone and you judge someone, you're criticizing the law, the royal law, and you're holding yourself up above the law. Now notice what James does here. Something he does at the end of verse 11, where he says, you are not a doer, when he talks about this action of criticizing, of speaking against, or judging. In so doing, if you, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. Again, James is borrowing from an understanding of that Jewish messianic community. They understood that the imperative the theological imperative of their life as a Jewish people, and now a messianic Jewish people, the imperative of their life, the imperative, theological imperative of their life as a Jewish people was to do the law. To be a doer of the law. But now by criticizing and judging, you're no longer a doer of the law. You have set yourself over 
the law. So our primary concern as believers for this Messianic Jewish community, for us today, what we take from this, instead of the implication being that I'm somehow over the law uh, and above the law, that's why I can now criticize and judge others. No, instead of that, uh, we need to humble ourselves as we saw at the end of, of verse 10, a posture of humility, understanding my place in the created order. And now then, in that spirit of humility, I once again become a doer of the law. What law? The law of love. You say, well, Bobby, and what I want us to understand is, as James uses this language of, of love, the love of which James speaks and of which Scripture speaks, that is to characterize our lives, this is not an emotional behavior. It's not an emotional behavior. It is a learned behavior. It is a behavior that is acted out. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, I think helps us to understand this kind of love, not as being an emotion, but rather an action. Listen to what C.S. Lewis writes, quote, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become loving is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people, he says, some people are cold, quote, quote, cold by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more a sin than having bad digestion is sin. And it does not cut them off from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning love. The rule for all of us, Lewis writes, is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we learn one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love them. Isn't that a wonderful statement? In other words, what, what James is saying and what Lewis has said is that Christian love, Christian love, it's not an emotional behavior. It is a learned behavior enacted by those who are committed to being obedient followers of Jesus Christ. As such, that's why James ends with an inquiring word. Notice there at the end of verse 12, because he has said there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, and this is why God, and this is why Jesus didn't want his disciples getting into the business of separating the wheat and the tares. Now your enthusiasm about trying to, all, all you're trying to do is to make yourself a judge, put yourself in a position of being a judge. Let, let's just patiently let the wheat and the tares grow up side by side, and then we'll let the Lord of the harvest do the sorting, sorting out because he knows more of the story than you do. Because there's only one judge and one lawgiver that can do it righteously. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you? Here's the inquiry. But who are you judging your neighbor? Has your bitter jealousy 
your selfish ambition, your envy, your own personal desires, yearnings, preferences? Has all of that selfish motivation, has it truly brought you to a place, he's saying? Where you so arrogantly hold yourself above or in equal company with the one who is the one true lawgiver and judge? Who are you? You see the danger of that kind of position that when we enter into the business of criticizing judgment, we only do it at face value. We only do it in, in the moment based upon how it's, uh, mainly how it's inconvenienced me. That, that's when we judge and we criticize individuals to others. It's when something doesn't done to our liking or uh, it's always present tense. It's an assumption that you know everything that is necessary. It assumes that you know every nuance of that person's life, their baggage, their experience that would come to bear on their life in that moment. To judge them, to criticize them is to assume too much. See, only God knows all those implications. Only God knows the heart of a man. Only God in his om omniscience knows all the things, all the factors, all the, all the tentacles, all the strings, all the webs that come to, bear to making, come to bear on making a person what they are. We don't have, we don't have that information. So here's the danger. And Jesus talked about the danger of this, of this judging of other people. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 7 of Matthew in verse 2, For in the way you judge, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So when you and I enter in this, this is the danger. When you and I enter into this business of judging, by whatever standard I've dared to judge you, criticize you, talk about you, in so doing, I've established the standard by which God now is going to judge me. He desires to judge by mercy and grace. But if you want to, set, if you want to establish the prototype by which your life is going to be judged, we'll go with your standard. We'll go at face value. We'll just go with the, how things look ex externally. I prefer to do it by mercy and grace, but if we, you want it this way, keep judging. Paul would say the same thing in Romans 2 and verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Those who judge, when we judge, what we judge most harshly in the lives of others is what we readily recognize in our own life. I mean, that's what's easiest for me to judge in the life of another person is what I see, what I know I struggle with in my own life. And when I see it in somebody else's life, because I'm so dissatisfied with me, I deal harshly with you instead of dealing harshly with myself. That's the danger in this business of, of judging. And we're all prone to it. It's so endemic to human nature. If we're not intentional, deliberate about avoiding it, we just continue the patterns of judging, criticizing, belittling. 
frankly, in an effort to elevate ourselves. See, the, the kinship in the body of Christ is to be unique and different. What, see, ours is a trust that cannot be broken, and that should not be broken, that is undermined by judging, criticism, belittling. I've thought a great deal about this. Especially in this larger section, James writing, you know, nearly two chapters about those of us that are in teaching positions, which we all are in our use of the tongue. And what would be an appropriate response to these negative, divisive, abusive uses of the tongue? What, what's a more appropriate response? What's a more effective use of the tongue? Like writer of Hebrews would say, let's, let's find ways to encourage one another to love and good works. Hebrews 10, 34. So in the light of that, what, what is a good response? When we, feel, when we feel in the moment, if we're deliberate about catching it, if we're not deliberate, it's just going to keep happening. But if I want to be deliberate, and when I feel that need welling up within me to, to, to criticize, to judge someone, What's a good response to stymie that, to stop it before it progresses? If you wait until you're down here in the, in the quagmire, in the vortex, it's, it's hard to stop it. But, but when you recognize it up here on the top at the rim where you, you're just tempted to judge someone and criticize them, what's a better response? What's a more constructive response for me and my faith? What about confession? Pausing in that moment to confess. Well, confess what? Well, to confess that I'm a sinner. So that puts things back in perspective, doesn't it? To confess that I'm a sinner. And then to confess that Jesus is Lord. Anything beyond that is better left unsaid let's pray together our father might the words of our mouth not be words of destruction words of belittlement but might our words be the kind of words that elevate words words of confession because when we confess, Lord, our own sin, our own failures, when we confess Jesus as Lord, when we confess our sin, we put ourselves not only in proper perspective within the created order, but as we confess Jesus as Lord. Father, we elevate not only your name, but we elevate the possibilities of what might be what might be in our own lives, what might be for us as a people of God bearing witness of God's grace and mercy in our world. So Father, as we leave from this place, I pray, Lord, for each one of us who are truly teachers in every sense of the word, that we would teach well the world about the redemptive love of God in Christ Jesus, who desires to show grace and mercy 
to all who are humble. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. And as we stand to be dismissed, I want to pronounce this blessing upon you. Please stand. From Paul to the church at Philippi, in chapter 1 in verses 9 through 11, and this I pray, that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may discover the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, for the glory and praise of God. God bless you. You're dismissed.